Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. To be a part of that great benefit from those groups. And thinking about the benefit of marriage enrichment groups, I'm reminded uh, of a story of a husband uh, who said to his wife, you know, when I get angry with you, uh, you never fight back. How do you control your anger? And the wife responded by saying, well, I just clean the toilets. And the husband was a little confused and said, well, I don't really understand how does that help? And she said, I use your toothbrush. (laughs) I don't understand how that wife kisses her husband (laughs) after that. But it does raise a good question for us, doesn't it? What do you do with your anger? How do you handle your anger? Do you have an anger problem? And maybe even more telling, do the people around you think that you have an anger problem? Certainly you know someone that has an anger problem. Maybe you live with someone who has anger issues. I don't think I need to convince you this morning that we live in a world with a lot of anger. We see this anger with road rage. Uh, We see it with violence on our streets. But this anger is also in our homes. The way we interact with our spouses, with our children, and with our parents, and with our roommates. And often this can take the form of abuse, whether that anger comes in the form of physical abuse or verbal abuse. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us to some degree are struggling with anger. And we're trying to deal with anger issues, and sometimes not very well, because there's a lot of anger in our hearts. At least I know that that's true of me. So we need to be honest about our anger and confront our anger issues because anger is destructive. Our anger is destructive. I injure, I alienate, I damage, and I wreck people in my relationships with my angry words and actions, including damaging my relationship with the Lord. But with anger, we also injure ourselves. Anger is linked to high blood pressure, increased risk of strokes and heart attacks, and just overall early mortality. Angry people are killing themselves. Christian author Frederick Buechner writes this, of the seven deadly sins of which anger is one, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger damages our relationships, damages ourselves, and so we need to deal with it. But ultimately, we need to be honest about our anger and deal with it because the Bible tells us to deal with it. Paul tells us to confront our anger and deal with it in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and 27, which is our text for this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and 27. We'll just read those two verses this morning. So when you find that in your Bible, I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. The passage will also be on the screens. So this is the word of God this morning from Ephesians chapter 4 verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and now that you would bless the preaching of your word. 
Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word and to respond in faith and obedience. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we're going to consider Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 4. As we do, we are going to analyze our anger. And we're going to be analyzing our anger uh, by looking at four things this morning. And the first is anger's definition. Anger's definition. Well, Paul does not give a definition of anger here in Ephesians chapter 4. He just assumes that we know what anger is. And while the Bible gives us a lot of descriptions and instances of recorded anger in the Bible, it doesn't give us a definition. So how would we go about formulating a theologically and experientially accurate statement and a biblically faithful definition of anger? Well, there are a lot of words and phrases that we could use, but let me offer this as a definition. Anger is a personal, holistic response of opposition to a perceived wrong. That's what anger is. It's a personal, holistic response of opposition to a perceived wrong. You might think, well, what what exactly were we talking about there? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. Anger is personal in the sense that it arises from our own hearts. Outside provocations can reveal and expose our anger, but those things don't put anger inside of us. Anger is not something that's injected into us by outside forces. And without denying the significant influences of the circumstances and situations around us, because they do influence the occasions in which we get angry, without denying early parental modeling or biological factors or other kinds of instances, satanic assaults even, without denying those influences, anger is personal in the sense that it's not something that originates outside of us. It's ours. We have to own our anger. But anger is not only personal, it's holistic in the sense that it involves our whole person. It's holistic that it involves our whole person. I mean, we certainly know that anger is an intensely emotional response. But our anger is also very physical. When we become angry, our entire body is engaged. Our muscles become tense. We clench our fists and we clench our jaws. And our heart rate increases, our blood pressure increases, our faces turn red, our nostrils can flare out, right? I mean, all these things are happening intensely in physical ways. And so it's not just that our anger is emotional, it is physical. But anger, in addition to being emotional and physical, is volitional. What I mean there by volitional is that anger happens according to our wills. It involves our wills. It's voluntary. Our anger is a choice. And as much as we would want to dispute that and say, I don't have any control over when I get angry, we recognize that anger is a choice every time. This choice is demonstrated every time that we're in a heated argument in the privacy of our homes and the doorbell rings or the phone rings or every time we're fuming at our children when we come into church and we see someone that greets us and we say, oh, hi, and we smile. We control our anger when we want to. Our anger is volitional. Our anger is also holistic in the sense that it's moral and spiritual. Note that our anger arises in response to a perceived wrong. There is a moral evaluation that is taking place when we become angry. 
So our, angry, our anger has a moral and spiritual component to it as well. So it's holistic in all of those ways. It's a personal holistic response, but we also notice that it's a response of opposition. Our anger attacks or resists this wrong that we've perceived. Okay? Our anger is resisting or attacking this wrong. So we can define anger this way. It's a personal holistic response of opposition to a perceived wrong. But is that always bad? Is our anger always sinful? Is there anything that we could say in anger's defense? And that's point number two, anger's defense. It would appear from the Bible that not all anger is wrong or sinful. I mean, look at our text this morning where Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. Or in the NIV translation, in your anger, do not sin. Whatever translation we would adopt, it seems clear that we need to conclude that not all anger is sinful. It's possible to be angry and not be sinning. And think about this as well. Didn't Jesus overturn tables in anger when he cleared the temple in John chapter 2? And aren't there expressions of anger in the Psalms, inspired expressions of anger? I mean, look what Psalm 69 verses 27 and 28 say. Uh, in referring to the wicked, offering this prayer to God about the wicked, the psalmist says, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. It sounds like there's some anger there with the psalmist. But in fact, most of the instances of anger recorded in Scripture are actually ascribed to God. God's anger is what's referenced most. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 29. This is in reference to uh, the anticipated exile of the people when they break the covenant that's being uh, laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. We read in verses 27 and 28, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. We see this in Revelation with the second coming of Jesus, how his work is connected to the wrath of God. It says when Jesus returns from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What are we supposed to do with these references to God's anger in the Bible? Well, we can start simply by recognizing the definition doesn't change. Divine anger is simply God's personal and holistic response of opposition to a perceived wrong. Now, of course, we have to bear in mind at the same time when we read passages like this that the Bible consistently tells us that God is slow to anger. But God is angry. He does have anger, and his anger is his opposition, his steady and perfect opposition to sin, to evil, and to wrongdoing in all of its forms. Now, of course, we also have to say this, that God's perception of wrong and sin is always perfectly accurate. His response is always holy and righteous, and he always pursues the proper end through his anger of reestablishing justice in the place of injustice, of righting wrongs. That's, what's God's, that's what God's anger aims for. I mean, after all, shouldn't we say that some things should be destroyed? 
And anger can sometimes serve as the fuel to destroy those things that ought to be overturned, like evil and wickedness, slavery and oppression. And so we see God's anger operative in that way. God's anger is not sinful anger. And so it's possible for us to be angry and have it not be sinful when it mirrors God's anger. It's possible for us to experience what we would call righteous anger. But how would we know if our anger is righteous anger? Well, Robert D. Jones uh, has written a book called Uprooting Anger. Uh, From a Christian perspective, his book is very helpful, and he identifies a number of characteristics of righteous anger. So let me share those with you now. Righteous anger opposes actual sin. Righteous anger is opposed to actual sin, not personal slights, not personal inconveniences, not personal interruptions, but righteous anger is opposed to actual sin. Secondly, righteous anger is focused on God, his kingdom, and his concerns, not me, my kingdom, and my concerns. Third, righteous anger is controlled and not controlling. In other words, Righteous anger is always pursuing the proper end. It is always concerned with the cause of God and does not turn the cause into something to serve our anger. That's when anger becomes controlled, becomes controlling for us. When the cause serves our anger rather than our anger serving the cause. And of course, anger serves a good cause. Righteous anger's goal and cause that it seeks is justice of righting wrongs, putting things the way they ought to be. So these are the four characteristics that will always accompany righteous anger. Let's think of an example of this then. Let's let's apply these characteristics to Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2. We're not going to turn to that passage. I hope that you're familiar to some degree with what happens in John chapter 2 when Jesus clears the temple. But we can see in that instance that first, Jesus was angry about actual sin. The temple had been turned into a den of of thieves okay there's sin going on there and jesus was opposed to actual sin secondly what motivated his anger was not personal interest but things related to the kingdom we read that it was zeal for his father's house that consumed him not not even his own house it was zeal for his father's house that consumed him and third we see that jesus was not controlled by that anger but was in control of that anger to make sure it was moving toward a proper cause. And the cause that Jesus was seeking in that anger was justice, not personal revenge, but justice, righting a wrong, reestablishing proper temple worship and practice. That's righteous anger we see right there in John chapter 2. Of course, the difficulty for me and for most of us is that because our anger is in response to a perceived wrong, whether that perception is accurate or not. Because it's aroused by a perceived wrong, our anger always feels like it's righteous anger. (laughs) Because we always feel like we've been wronged. It always feels righteous. We always feel entitled to it. But when I look at those characteristics, I have to admit that most of my anger is not righteous anger. Most of my problems are not with this person must know me well. I figure my, fa- I figure my, my wife and my kids would be laughing at that. But um, most of my anger is not righteous anger. It's sinful 
anger. And so Paul moves on to talk about anger's danger as well. So that's our third point, anger's danger, the sinfulness of anger. Paul writes here, be angry, but do not sin. He recognizes that, that, sinful, that sinfulness is a real danger when we're angry. Now, I mentioned already that most depictions of anger in the Bible have to do with God. They're ascribed to God. But when human anger is in view, it's primarily sinful human anger that the Bible is addressing. Very rarely do we see righteous human anger in the Bible because the Bible is primarily interested in confronting our sinful anger, the kind of anger that is said that we need to put to death in Colossians chapter 3, the kind of anger that is listed as a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, the kind of anger that does not accomplish the righteousness of God in James chapter 1, the kind of anger that is consistently opposed to wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs. That's the kind of human anger that the Bible is consistently addressing. But how would we then identify anger in its sinfulness, its dangerous form? Well, first, anger is sinful when it's aimed at the wrong target. In other words, we can contrast this with righteous anger, when it's not a response of opposition to actual sin. Our anger is sinful when it's aimed at the wrong target. Now, it pains me to say these things, but drivers are not sinning when they're only going the speed limit. (laughs) And they're not even sinning when they're going under the speed limit. My kids are not sinning when they fail to keep the house as neat and tidy as my standards would like. The person that orders too much food at the drive-thru window and has backed up the entire line making me wait for my food is not sinning. And my favorite sports teams are not sinning because they're not playing very well. But how often is our anger aimed at these things rather than actual sin, wickedness, and injustice? And how often is our anger aimed at the wrong target because it's aimed at the wrong person, like our spouse or our children or the dog, when what's gotten us in a bad mood is something or someone else entirely different? The wrong person is also the wrong target. And of course, the worst form of this is how often do we become angry with God at how he has arranged our circumstances? That we feel that we're the victims of some kind of gross injustice inflicted upon us at the hands of God because he hasn't given us the desires that we want. He hasn't given us the kind of day that we wanted. He hasn't given us the kind of job that we want. He hasn't given us the kind of spouse that we want, the kind of children that we want. He hasn't given us our desires. You ever been angry about the weather? Honestly, have you ever gotten angry because the weather wasn't what you wanted it to be? Who do you suppose the target is in that anger if it's not aimed at God? So anger is sinful when it's aimed at the wrong target. But in many of these instances, my anger is sinful not only because it's aimed at the wrong target, but it's provoked for the wrong reasons. So anger is sinful when it's provoked for the wrong reason. In other words, it's all about me and my kingdom. I'm not focused on God and his kingdom. My anger is perverted because my perception of wrongs is perverted. The perceptions of wrongs committed against me are grossly and excessively inflated. 
the slightest kind of injustice, the slightest kind of insult, the slightest kind of interruption or inconvenience or indignity is perceived and regarded as a gross miscarriage of cosmic justice. I mean, oftentimes, if I'm honest, if I really think about it, I'm honest, most of my anger is provoked when the universe doesn't revolve around me and my wants and my desires and my schedule and my plans and my expectation and when people and things don't begin orbiting around me like moons to serve me. That's when I become angry. And this helps to explain why I can be angered by justice as easily as I can by injustice if justice doesn't suit me. If justice inconveniences me, it also explains why my indignation is fueled by wrongs committed against me, and it's not fueled by wrongs committed against Jesus. Because it's provoked for the wrong reason. It's all about me and my world and my universe and my wants and my desires. Simply put, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we get angry because we don't get what we want when we want it. And you think, no, I think you're talking about toddlers. No, I think I'm talking about me. And I'm probably talking about you. We get angry because we don't get what we want when we want it. But third, anger is also sinful when it's expressed in the wrong manner. When our anger controls us. For example, when we become angry too quickly. Meaning we're irritable. We're easily annoyed. We're quick-tempered. So everyone around us is walking on eggshells. Note how different this is than God's anger, a God who is slow to anger when we become easily annoyed, irritable, and quick-tempered. And of course, living with those kind of people makes everyone miserable, right? We make everyone miserable when we become angry too quickly. But we can also be angry in the wrong manner by being angry too much. Now, this doesn't mean too often. It means that our anger explodes, that we blow up in a rage with profanity-laced tira- uh, uh, laced tirades, harsh words that are shouted at the top of our lungs, um, slammed doors, a string of broken items behind us. Don't think that people in this sanctuary don't explode with that kind of anger sometimes. Don't just assume that well, we're Christians. No one has that kind of anger. We do struggle with that kind of anger at times. Some of us more than others. But we have those kinds of instances where we just lose control. Anger revealers who sometimes want some people, right? We're, we're very skilled at who we want to see and hear our anger. We're skilled at hiding it, but sometimes we want certain people to see and hear how angry we are. And so we display it like that, and it's destructive. Anger revealers, Robert Jones calls them. They they let their anger be known because they lose their tempers. And it's easy to identify these people as those who have anger issues. (laughs) They need to go to some classes for anger management. But at the same time, there are also those who are angry for too long. And these are often anger concealers who hold grudges, who refuse to forgive, who adopt very passive-aggressive strategies like cold shoulders and curt responses. Are you mad? No. What's wrong? Nothing. 
when everyone in the world knows you're angry, but you refuse to acknowledge that. You're an anger concealer who holds on to anger too long. So, you know, another, another thing that anger concealers can do is they, they attempt to ruin another's pleasure by intentionally being uncooperative. And isn't this the strategy of the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son? He just goes outside and stews, trying to take away from the celebration of the prodigal son until the father has to go out there and address it. Have you ever done that kind of thing? Just intentionally been uncooperative to ruin someone else's pleasure. I mean, the truth is this. You're not off the hook just because you're not a hothead. You may not blow up in your anger, but your anger simmers underneath the surface, and it's sinful, and it's destructive. And isn't it interesting that it's this kind of simmering anger that Paul is quick to address in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You have to deal with that. But finally, we can say also that anger is sinful when it's seeking the wrong end. Sinful anger is usually seeking personal revenge, not justice. Personal revenge. I want to make people pay. I want to injure people. I want to harm people. I want to hurt people for the perceived wrong that they've done to me in my anger. Now, oftentimes, this kind of injuring of people takes place only in the cherished fantasies of our imaginations, right? You know, you know the story, right? You, you imagine these scenarios in which you're getting back at the person. You actually don't take any active steps to get revenge. You just ponder it, and you think about it, and you fantasize about this revenge and injuring the person. Sometimes you do take active steps to injure and harm others. Because that's what you're after. That's what sinful anger is after. Personal revenge, not justice. And so it's not difficult for us to see the danger of our anger, is it? And it's not difficult to understand how destructive it is in our relationship with others, to ourselves, and in our relationship with God. And it's not difficult to understand how our anger gives an opportunity to the devil to do his destructive work in us and through us, to divide people, to separate them in their fellowship with God. It's not easy. It's not difficult for us to see that. Paul instructs us in our passage, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil to do that work. But how do we do that? How do we deal with our anger constructively? How do we resolve it well? What are some steps for anger's defeat? So that's the fourth point. Let me mention four things. I'll try to mention them very, very quickly because I don't want people to get angry if my sermon gets too long. So I'll try to be brief here. But I have four things under anger's defeat. First is repent. Uh, these all start with, with R. So I've alliterated a point under alliterated points. Uh, first, repent of your anger. Repent. Stop justifying and excusing your anger by classifying it as, as righteous anger when it isn't. And stop excusing your anger by saying things like, well, I'm just stressed out at work. My kids are pushing my buttons. I'm of German descent. <laughs> or I'm of Italian descent. Or I'm hormonal right now. Those are excuses we'll use as if anger is just something inflicted upon us from outside. Stop it. Repent of your anger and confess it. Confess the anger in your heart to God as sin. It's in here. 
Lord, and I confess it as sin. And as you're thinking about that, though, also identify the idols behind your anger and repent of those idols. I mean, I notice if I think about it, the reason I get angry with slow traffic is because I'm worried about what people will think of me if I'm late. Because people approval, what others think of me, a fear of others' opinions is an idol. So I don't want to be late and I'm angry at traffic. Oftentimes we get angry when we get home that we have to clean stuff up that the kids have made a mess because all I really wanted to do was sit down in comfort and rest in peace. Because I have an idol problem with comfort. And the reason I get angry at interruptions in my day is because I want ultimate control over what my life looks like. That's an idol of control. Identify the idols that are lurking behind your anger and repent of them as well as repenting of your anger. The second thing we need to do is resist. Resist the devil and resist your anger. Resist the devil and resist your anger. But how do we do that? I mean, that's really hard to do, right? It is. But one of the most effective ways to resist is through prayer. We need God's help in this. So pray. Make prayers to fight anger a regular part of your day. If you have a problem with anger, are you praying about it? Are you asking for God's help at the beginning of every day? Are you praying in those moments where you're tempted to become angry? Pray in the moments where you're tempted to become angry. Don't just count to 10. Don't put your head in a freezer, as some people have, have recommended. They may be effective, but ultimately, pray. And another thing you can add to those prayers is recite scripture to yourself in those moments. Memorize passages of scripture that can help you resist your anger. Think of something like Proverbs 29:11. Think about memorizing this. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Say that to yourself in moments. Preach that to yourself in moments where you're tempted to become angry. Look at Proverbs 25:28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Commit those passages or other similar passages to memory. Pray those, recite those when you're tempted to become angry. Remember this as well in connection with prayer. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to remain angry at people for whom you are praying. So pray for the people who tend to make you angry, who tempt you toward anger. Pray for those people. And finally, because anger is a holistic response, we're able to resist better if we're taking care of ourselves physically. We tend to undermine that or dismiss that. But if you're struggling with anger, make sure that you're getting enough sleep, that you're eating well, and that you're exercising. But above all, pray. The third thing is to resign. Stop playing God and seeking divine entitlements. We need to stop living like the world and everyone in it should revolve around us and our desires and our plans. I need to let go of the demand that things happen according to my commandments as if my commandments are, are what should be ruling the world. Thou shalt not drive more slowly than me. That shalt not make this appliance difficult to put together. That usually gets me. Um, that shalt not interrupt my plans for the day. That shalt not interrupt my plans for comfort or ease. That shalt respond to my needs immediately. We need to stop that. We need to resign our plans for ourselves and accept God's plans for us. But stop playing God, resigning playing God. I really appreciated Mike Spencer, who was here as a counselor in Indianapolis and spoke at a Porn Kills conference. One of the things that he said uh, during his address was that every morning, 
as he gets up, he, he reminds himself of this. I am not God. That's a really good thing to remind ourselves of, especially if we're fighting anger. I'm not God. I don't control my day. I can resign that to the Lord. But of course, this requires trust, which leads to the fourth thing, and that is replace. Replace anger with godly fruit. Replace anger and the related fear, pride, and insecurity that often go with it with trust in God. Trust Him to order your day. Trust Him to secure your good. Trust Him to secure justice and goodness for you. You don't have to accomplish these things on your own, which often leads to anger because it makes us feel vulnerable because we can't secure those things on our own. But we can turn them over to the Lord, trusting Him. And in addition to replacing our anger with trust, we can also replace our anger with gratitude. Doesn't it seem almost impossible to be angry and grateful at the same time? So in those moments where you're tempted to be angry, be grateful that you have transportation. Be grateful that you have good roads to drive on. Be grateful that the Lord watches over you and protects you. Be grateful that you have gainful employment so that you can provide for your needs. Be grateful that you have children you have to clean up after. Because there are some people who long to have children and don't have them. And you're angry because you have to clean things up. Be grateful for opportunities, unplanned opportunities that you have to serve people in need. Replace your anger with gratitude. And above all, perhaps, replace your anger toward people with love for people. Instead of being angry with people, instead of judging them and condemning them and seeking to punish them, playing God by punishing them and, and executing and protecting your own justice, let your anger go, drop your charges against them, and love them. Love them. Seek to help them, not to harm them. To bless them, not to blast them. And this is important both for anger revealers and anger concealers. Let love trump your anger. And in fact, isn't this what God has done with his anger towards sinners? The good news of the gospel for all who believe is that God's love has trumped his righteous anger over your sinfulness. That God has let go of his anger. He has dropped the charges and he loves you. He's not judging you, condemning you, or punishing you. But it's not because he doesn't care about justice. It's because he has turned his face away from his son in righteous anger on the cross as Jesus took upon himself our punishment, your punishment and my punishment in order to satisfy the claims of divine justice. And it's ultimately by looking at the cross where we see God's anger poured out, where we see his anger emptied for our redemption out of his deep love for us, that our hearts learn to trust him, to secure our good, to establish us in mercy. It's by looking to the cross that we learn to trust God. It's by looking to the cross that our hearts are filled with gratitude. It's by looking to the cross that we're drawn to love God. And that gives us the freedom to set aside our anger toward others. And like God has done for us, we can choose to love them instead rather than seeking their destruction and our revenge. So we'll still face a lot of sin and evil in this world that ought to make us angry. And there's still a lot of things that won't go our way that will tempt us to sinful anger. And it'll be very difficult to eradicate sinful anger. It's not just a matter of, well, I've got, I've got four easy steps there to get rid of my anger. It's not going to be easy. Listen to what Proverbs says 
Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes his city. We need supernatural help to defeat our anger, and that help comes from the cross, by looking to the cross. Charles Spurgeon sums all this up very, very well. He says, if we cannot control our tempers, what has grace done for us? We must not make natural infirmity an excuse for our sin, but we must fly to the cross and pray the Lord to crucify our tempers and renew us in gentleness and meekness after his own image. Let's pray that now. Lord, we acknowledge that uh, our anger is sinful and we lose control of it often. But Lord, we pray that you would bestow grace upon us that we would not make natural infirmity an excuse, that we would not attempt to justify it, but we would confess our sinful anger to you and that we would fly to the cross and learn to trust you and learn to be grateful to you for your grace and your mercy, that we would be able to extend that grace and mercy to others and that we would learn to love you at the cross and that you would renew in us gentleness and meekness after your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.